0: Lord Vader's shuttle has arrived. Lord Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, G. I'll be there to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down. I tell you this station will be operational. Well, the man don't think so. And he be cruising down here to check out this ride. The Emperor's coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN.
1: Good afternoon, I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show.
0: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
1: Coming up on today's show, Bush the Recycler, Roll Pools, and Nanocosmetics.
0: In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Dan Gilmore, who will talk about citizen media.
1: Also, we'll find out what quinine is.
0: So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokotron 5000 and the world famous question of the week coming right up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? As excited as always. How excited can you possibly get? Because it's science, right? It seems like the light is t- finally turning on for Bush. The light inside of his head? Yes, if there is one, huh? <laughs> it's an LED, I think. <laughs> <laughs> sort of a low-power light, the best we can expect. 0.5 watts. Uh, so it
1: turns out he's uh, actually advocating recycling.
0: Wow, in what respect?
1: Uh, nuclear recycling. In a sense of reprocessing spent fuel and using it again for more uh, energy generation
0: this uh, actually not been tried? What happens with the uh, spent rods? Do they just normally bury it, I guess, is the idea?
1: Well, that's actually very controversial. That is probably the main problem with nuclear power is what to do with the spent fuel. And right now there's the Yucca Mountain controversy where they're building a repository to store this radioactive waste. People there are not too happy about it. There's a lot of environmental concerns. But the administration feels that they should open no later than 2012 or so.
0: Okay, so they're still going ahead with the plans to bury those stuff.
1: Right, but the recycling thing actually allows you not to bury it so soon. You can reuse it a few times. And the way that it works is that once you spent your fuel, uh, you still have uh, quite a lot of plutonium left, mm-hmm. as well as all the other elements that you produce in the process. And what you can do is recover the plutonium and use it again but the reason why they haven't done that and this was actually done until the 70s was due to fears of proliferation that spent fuel rods could be stolen by terrorist uh, hostile groups to use it for weapons
0: so why is it safer now then
1: uh it's actually not but <laughs> overall it's actually a more inexpensive solution
0: so money always wins over safety
1: yes so but it turns out of the 33 nations in the world that do use nuclear fission 12 of them actually use fuel rods that have already been reprocessed mm-hmm. so it's not unconventional method but what What they have as a possible scheme is to use these reprocessed rods, use them as loans to these countries that need the power, and then have them agree not to uh, process their own uranium.
0: Yeah, let's see if that works out, I guess. <laughs>
1: it's very controversial. And, I mean, no kidding. <laughs> it's going to face a lot of opposition, but apparently Bush wants to resurrect his practice. <laughs>
0: All right. I want to be just putting this out as red herring arguments, right? Hey, clean energy, man. <laughs> we know he's the clean energy president. That's why we're in this war, for clean energy. <laughs> Some and people
1: call it pollution.
0: <laughs> we call it life. All right. So uh, if people want to know more about this, we're going to take a look. There's a very nice article in
1: the March 27th issue of Chemical Engineering.
0: Well, I think what we really need as far as getting rid of the radioactive waste is bacteria that can break it down. So,
1: like, actually break down the nucleus of the atom into hydrogens, right?
0: <laughs> A nuclear bacteria. Right. <laughs> in any case, we do have bacteria that wind up being fairly resistant to the drugs that can attack them. Right. Big problem, so many people go to the hospitals, contract infections that are resistant to antibiotics. Right. So there's a big search now for new drugs to actually kill these super-resistant bacteria. Uh-huh. And one approach that's been taken uh, recently by a group at Merck is to screen natural compounds to see if any of these are actually useful against these super-resistant bacteria.
1: You mean like stuff found in dirt? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oddly enough, yes. In fact, there is a uh, bug called Streptomyces Platensis, and this bug actually lives in the soil of South Africa. Okay. And it produces a particular small molecule which they've called platensomycin. And what this drug actually does is it attacks the protein called FabF. Okay. And what this FabF protein does is it's actually involved in the production of fatty acids. Mm -hmm. And so by introducing this platensomycin, it actually interrupts the formation of fatty acid synthesis in the bacteria. Right. And that causes the bacteria just to die. Wow. And they've screened numerous natural compounds apparently, and they all seem to target this FabF protein. Uh-huh. which suggests that this is probably a really new target that hasn't been used right. in antibiotic research thus far. Right. Very fascinating work. It was published in the recent edition of Nature, and it was work that was done, again, by scientists at the Merck Research Laboratories in Rawway, New Jersey.
1: So I was taking antibiotics recently, and then I was reading that it turns out a lot of the antibiotics, when you pee, the molecules remain intact, and it goes into the wastewater system.
0: Yeah, I've actually heard that, right? And yeah. that's
1: actually a serious problem because now going out in the world where it can interact with a lot of microbes that make them uh, resistant
0: to it. Well, the way I look at it is, you know, it's free antibiotics in the sewers for the sewer rats who can't <laughs> afford it. Of course. And they need antibiotics like everybody else.
1: And the cockroaches too.
0: <laughs> anyway, the, again, published in our recent edition of Nature.
1: Okay, so this story is about chemicals going bad. Spoiling? I guess so. So what do you use to keep your face so young?
0: Well, I get a new face every year.
1: Do you graft it off of the cat's. stuff?
0: Yeah, the, I don't really care much for the cat face. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it turns out there's a company out there, and they're selling a face cream with a so-called the Nobel Prize winning ingredient.
0: Ah, oh, cat face. <laughs> no, C60. Buckminster Fullerine.
1: Yes, the Buckminster balls that...
0: All right, Buckyballs.
1: Yeah, which... Uh, Rick Smalley got the Nobel Prize in 1996.
0: Yes. So is the idea that these little buckyballs will fill the pores and crevices in your skin or something? Why are the buckyballs uh,
1: Actually, you do not want that to happen. Ah. But the idea here is that these buckyballs are supposedly have antioxidant and radical scavenging properties. But this raises actually a number of concerns. Although these companies, actually there's quite a few of them, who now use buckyballs, they claim that it's safe and that they've taken independent studies. But long term, nothing is known. We don't know if buckyballs will actually penetrate into the inner layers of your skin, will go into your pores or not. Mm-hmm. It does seem it, preliminary research that it, it can't diffuse in beyond the uh, top layers, but we don't know what actually happens, and mm. this is one of the concerns they have about nanoparticles being used with cosmetics and actually you know, being used in many applications that we have really no data as to how they'll interact with the environment in the long term.
0: I see. Interesting. Well, you might wind up having them form graphite, and then you'll have pencil head, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's actually one possible mechanism where these molecules can't really turn bad, is that when they interact with sunlight or any form of light it could excite the molecule go some sort of an excitation where it goes to a triplet state that's the excited states and transfer that energy to an oxygen in its vicinity and that would form a very powerful uh, oxidant instead
0: opposite of the effect that you would want right (laughs) yes and then you might wind up looking like Roseanne Barr (laughs) (laughs) which is maybe not a bad thing I don't know maybe you want to look like Roseanne Barr (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: so anyways apologies uh, to
0: Roseanne Barr that was just the first name that came to mind
1: (laughs) (laughs) what would Brian Voitano say I don't know anyways those raise a number of concerns about nanoparticles and okay. the future of nanotechnology. All right. And if anyone's interested, there's a very nice Insight article also in the uh, March 27th edition of Chemical and Engineering.
0: Well, I've always found that the best rejuvenation for my skin has been Whirlpool.
1: With uh, superchlorination, right?
0: <laughs> well, it might help hair if you like the bleach blonde look. <laughs> These whirlpools are kind of interesting because in huge planets, it's been observed in Saturn, for example, that at the poles, you find these large structures that are caused by the vortices of the spinning planet. Uh-huh. And they have unique shapes like stars and hexagons. And it's not clear exactly how that forms from the turbulent fluid flow that's going on on the planet. Right. So a group of researchers have actually tried to mimic this process just using a simple cylindrical bucket with a rotating metal bottom. Uh-huh. And this was a group of researchers at the Technical University of Denmark in Lingby. It was led by Thomas born and colleagues. Mm-hmm. And what they've done is that they've actually taken just this bucket and spun it rapidly and they've been able to reproduce the shapes, little stars and hexagons and all kinds of uh, interesting shapes that form in these buckets. Okay. And so they suggest that whatever process is going on in these might be very similar to what's going on in these Hmm. planets. So there you go, in case you want to create hexagonal vortices. <laughs> that's
1: pretty cool. I, I thought most vortices were around or yeah, circular. Yeah,
0: well that's what you might expect, but some symmetry breaking going on that's causing that to happen.
1: Hmm, must be like snowflakes or something.
0: <laughs> no two vortices are alike. Apparently the shape of the vortices is sort of highly dependent on the speed of the rotation. Okay. So the faster you go it seems you get a little more complicated shapes. Uh-huh. So that might have something to do and with...
1: Maybe it. some sort of like harmonic resonance within the perimeter or something.
0: So very, very cool stuff. It was recent work that was published in Edition of Physical review letters
1: and that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week this is Berke grok listening to here on 90.7 fm in a few moments dan gilmore joins us to talk about citizen journalism so stay tuned Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Until recently, mainstream journalism consisted of TV outlets, newspapers, and radio. But the rise of the internet is rapidly changing the landscape of media and bringing down the barriers for ordinary citizens to participate. Joining us today is our special guest, Mr. Dan Gilmore, former writer for the San Jose Mercury News and a proponent for grassroots journalism. Mr. Gilmore, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. So I understand you've written a fascinating new book, uh, We the Media. Could you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Well, I hope it's written for anybody who's interested in the the changes in media, particularly uh, journalism. And what it's about is the collision of technology with media and what that means to... The infrastructure and all the people who need to know about what is going on in the world. The journalists have to care because it's creating a new world for them in many different ways, in particular that they have to start listening better and not just lecturing. The second constituency of journalism would be the newsmakers, the people and the institutions that we cover in our publications and broadcasts and web pages. Something new happening to them with all these people writing about them, talking about them. And they also should be, and uh, some are, using these tools to be better at their own messages. And then finally, the most important group is the people we have been calling the audience. And they have lots of new opportunities to get a better report and using these tools themselves can become, if they wish, journalists on their own.
1: And now that we have all this access, how much news do we really need?
2: As much as we want. We need to know what's going on in the world in a general way, of course. The opportunity here is that we can get a better report about what is happening globally in our communities and in the topics that we care about the most. It's not just getting a wide report, but now we can get a very deep one about the things that uh, mean the most to us. Uh, Which brings me to the next question. How do we know
1: what is real out there? Um, Our astute listeners are probably aware that no news source is completely unbiased. And despite the best efforts of the networks, all news should be treated with some degree of skepticism. Wouldn't we perhaps view these new emerging sources with even more scrutiny?
2: I think we need to be cautious about anything that is called media if we're going to rely on it for major decisions. And that would apply to traditional media uh, as well as newer media, though to a lesser degree in some ways. I think we know that the story in the newspaper, while it may not be perfect, that some care has gone into getting it right and to editing and to reporting. Whereas we, we don't know that about the tabloid, which is also a newspaper that we see at the checkout stand at the supermarket. So old media can be just as varied as new media. If you're going to make a major decision based on something you read or see or hear, you need to check further, no matter what the medium. In the new media, where anything can look as good as anything else, we have to be particularly careful, and we have to find things that we trust and use them more than things we don't know about. And we should not assume that what we see is true and one important thing is that there's a lot of speech out there that's anonymous or pseudonymous that I think we should start off assuming is probably not true until we have some evidence that it is. One of the
1: goals with the new media is participatory democracy where ordinary people have easier access to lend their voice and one of the interesting trends going on is that high school students are writing actively to blogs and you know as a result they're enhancing their um, communication skills as well as expressing their opinions better. Are you optimistic that you know our next generation of Americans will be more active politically?
2: I don't know, I hope so. One thing thing I'm looking at and I I hope to do a research project on this is the question of whether engagement with the news at the level of caring more about it and or even producing one's own whether that becomes a stepping stone toward more engagement with actual activist type activities my speculation is that that probably will that the it's it's a pretty big step to get off the couch and stop being a couch potato, to being more actively engaged with what's going on around us. And that making that step, I think, would be a natural leading toward a path where you become more active politically or socially or whatever moves you. And I'm hoping this will be the case.
1: So speaking of activism, uh, the recent uh, protests that's been going on over the immigration bills, a lot of it was carried out to uh, the radio, uh, especially in LA, Spanish broadcasters. And up to this day, radio is still perhaps the most inexpensive medium for carrying out information. Um, do you see these old media still retaining their uh, strength in uh, activism?
2: We shouldn't assume that new media is going to just suddenly replace what is traditional and widely used and the fact is that radio is a fantastically good way to get people to know about and care about things and I thought it was really interesting that the traditional mainstream, if you want to call it media, the mass media folks didn't realize until after the protest in LA how it had really occurred, how the, the ethnic media had done such a fantastic job of getting people to turn out for something that they cared about. Now, this is an important event, and I think people need to understand that traditional media, big or little, are not going away anytime soon, and that what we're looking for, at least what I'm looking for, is an ecosystem that includes the old doing the stuff they do well and the new doing the stuff it does well.
1: I guess one of the trends here, um, has the net truly brought about an openness in people's thinking? Um, I think there's some studies that show that People with political, uh, a political bent will, uh, for example, like uh, say liberals, will only subscribe to, say, liberal blogs or sites or books, and also conservatives uh, subscribing to their own views, and as a result, they just reinforce their own thinking as opposed to, say, um, bringing about an open discussion where people can discuss their ideas more freely.
2: I think this is a worry a lot of folks have had, but if uh, the alternatives are the traditional media which now includes Fox News um, and hardly, it's hardly the case that people who watch that are are interested in opposing viewpoints and the actual data so far suggests that the echo chamber effect that that many are worried about is not going to happen the way people expect and that uh, there's a pretty, seems to me, a pretty good explanation for why this is the case and that is that Uh, in, let's just take blogs as an example, they point to the things they disagree with. They put a link in to the people they're criticizing. So it's a very easy step to go see what the fuss is about. That's harder to do in the traditional media. And the data that has appeared so far suggests that far from an echo chamber, the people who engage seriously with the new media, however they believe politically, Tend to know more about what their op- uh, opposition thinks than people who don't. So that's a. It's very early data. It's not conclusive by any means. But I'm very optimistic about the uh, echo chamber not being a problem.
1: A couple questions about the general media. The recent sale of Knight Ritter, Does that portend a trend towards more uh, consolidations?
2: Well, we'll see. It's uh, the the sale has not yet. Taking place, they have agreed to sell the company to uh, McClatchy. Although McClatchy is about is going to spin off uh, about a third of the Knight Ritter papers uh, before it does the uh, the buy, if they can. There's certainly consolidation going on in terms of ownership, but the the trend that's really an important one in newspapers is that circulation is is shrinking. Uh, revenues are threatening to start shrinking. Uh, Profits are certainly getting lower. But it's still quite a profitable business. It's still quite a valuable business. And the consolidation uh, that worries me has nothing to do with a bunch of media companies owning mass media. Though that does concern me to some extent. I think that's certainly a problem. But the, the much bigger worry I have, is the consolidation that the cable and telephone companies are pulling off on broadband internet access, or or the thing we call broadband in this country, which is, of course, not the real thing. If they're not just demanding the control of the pipes and the data flow, they're control, they want to control uh, what gets sent and received and at what rate. That is terrifying if you think about consolidation. It means that in the given community, uh, one or two companies will have the, uh, basically, they'll be able to say what we can uh, see and in what order. Now, they're not going to outright block, uh, I don't think, they're, they're stupid enough to outright block things they uh, don't have a stake in, but they can slow it down, they can make it harder to get to, they can favor their own content, they can, add, they can put in big price hikes, um, and unfortunately, Federal uh, regulators and Congress do not seem to care about this. In fact, the indications are that they think that's a good idea. And if you care about if you care about fairness in all kinds of ways, this is very dangerous. And how do you see
1: public funding for uh, programs like PBS uh, changing? Do you see encouraging signs of greater support, or do you see more polarization going on?
2: Well, I'm not particularly uh, an advocate of taxpayer funding for the media. I tend to believe that if government gives you the money, uh, at some point you're going to start dancing to the government's tune. And I don't like that. If we could really be sure of independence, that would be one thing, but it concerns me. I think the trend over time is likely to be less government funding. and. I I think that would not be such a bad thing. Great. I
1: guess we are running a little bit out of time. Um, What are some exciting things you're excited about that's going on on the net or in the media?
2: Well, I'm just jazzed about the idea that people are uh, learning that not only do they have a voice, but they can put it out there. And that they, especially, they can collaborate with other people. They can join this emerging conversation about what's happening in our world, about big issues, little issues, the communities that we live in, the communities of interest that we have, that all kinds of things that are giving us an opportunity to work together and to add our own information to this kind of global pool that's being assembled of of things we know, and that in the end, that is going to be valuable for everybody, provided that we, we don't allow it to fall under the control of a few uh, governments or companies.
1: Great. Mr. Gilmore, thanks so much for joining us on Berkeley Grox today.
2: Uh, Thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: And we were just talking to Mr. Dan Gilmore, former editor at San Jose Mercury News. He's currently part-time instructor here at UC Berkeley and directs the Center for Citizen Media. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments we'll find out what quinine is Plus the Gurocotron 5000, so stay here. Welcome back to Berka Grocks and now it's time for the Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue and Mr. Gilmore has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition. Uh, Today's question is mainstream or grassroots and here are the following five subjects. Subject number one, mainstream or grassroots? Oprah Winfrey. Mainstream. But doesn't she, you know, appeal to the
2: uh, grassroots consciousness of America? She does, but if I have to pick one or the other, I'm going to pick mainstream. She's a giant media star who does a broadcast of a one-too-many broadcast. I don't see any other uh, way to paint that. and I, I, th- I think what she does is quite good, but I'm saying it's, it's clearly mainstream to me.
1: Subject number two, and the, uh, the answer may be somewhat obvious, uh, the Creative Commons movement.
2: Well, it's grassroots.
1: Subject number three, the Star Wars film franchise
2: mainstream mass in the in the absolute extreme uh, <laughs> that's blockbuster territory and by the way i don't like the word mainstream i prefer the word mass when we talk about media because okay. i don't know what the mainstream is anymore subject
1: number four um, the president of the united states george w bush mainstream or grassroots
2: actually i'm at some level a little of both the republican party in particular the religious uh, right is an extremely diffused and bottom-up kind of thing. There, there's a certain top-down, this is the issues we care about, so you, this is what you should support. But they have done better organizing at the grassroots by far than the Democrats have ever thought of doing, at least in recent times. So some of each.
1: And finally, subject number five, super pop star Michael Jackson.
2: Well, I haven't thought about him in a long time. I, you know, mass media all the way.
1: Well, Mr. Gilmore, thanks so much for joining us on this week's Grokatron
2: 5000. You're welcome. Thanks.
0: Okay, man, now. It's the ganja, man. With the answer to last week's question of the week, quinine, I've tried it, man. But all it's ever helped me with is malaria. And that's what the quinine's good for, man.
1: Okay, and push we with this week's question of the week. What is the way of the impulse? Is it the same as the way of my feast? If you know or think you know what the impulse is, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you will survive my chop. And that's all for this week's edition of the Berkeley Grox Science Show.
0: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
1: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
0: And I'm Charles Z. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.